Welcome, you're listening to Why, a Good Grief Network podcast with Amy Lewis Rowe and Laura Schmidt. Today on Why, a Good Grief Network podcast, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing Treby Johnson. We recorded this interview with Treby on Skype, and so the sound quality is not quite what we'd like it to be. And yet we promise the fruitful discussion makes it well worth the listen. Enjoy this delightful dialogue with Treby Johnson. Treby Johnson is the founder and director of the global community Radical Joy for Hard Times, devoted to finding and making beauty in wounded places. She is also the author of Radical Joy for Hard Times, Finding Meaning and Making Beauty in Earth's Broken Places. The world is awaiting love desire and the quest for the beloved 101 ways to make gorilla beauty and many articles and essays that explore the human bond with nature welcome to the podcast trebby i'm just really honored and delighted to to be on your podcast thank you let's dig in shall we aim did you want to tell trebby about your story i spent yesterday on our yard swing with your book interacting with it and underlining excitedly. And I especially got excited at the part where you talk about the incompleteness that comes with the story that some of us have been told about the idea that humans are a cancer on the planet. So I felt that in my heart, it felt healing. And then you can probably guess there's more to this story. Last night, Laura and I chose to watch Our Planet which uh, you may have heard about, they do not shy away from the destruction, uh, unlike some of the other nature documentaries out there. And while watching it, I still felt that wave of, oh my God, we're a cancer on the planet. And really found it ironic that just earlier in the day, I was feeling the truth of your statement. And I do believe that 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 is an incomplete perspective, but we get stuck in these feelings of, of feeling that. And I think that actually feeling that can be important and a gateway to kind of seeing a more complete picture. And I just wanted to one, thank you for writing about that. And two, I would love to hear uh, what happens when those feelings stir up in you and uh, yeah, how your work influences that. Well, I, I, I probably feel despair about the state of the planet. Um, I don't know three or four times a day on a good day, you know, on a bad day, it's more. But, um, but the, the, the idea that humans are a cancer, I mean, I first read that, oh my gosh, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, because um, the guy who founded uh, uh, Earth First, I think he was the, Dave Foreman, I think he was the one who first started talking about that. And it just really made me feel bad because Humans have made tons of mistakes, but we're, we are, we are the earth. You know, we're not, we, we are, we have arisen from the earth. We are born of the earth and we make lots of mistakes, but we also do a lot of things right. And most of us love nature in our own way. And a lot of people are working extremely hard to right the, the, the terrible imbalances that are going on now. And throughout time, people have been writing poems and songs and making paintings about the earth. So I think we're a very flawed species and a very selfish species in a lot of ways, but I certainly don't think we're a cancer whose only job is to destroy the home that we live on. I'm, I'm glad for that, and I don't think so either. 
and and yet it's it's easy to get caught in the despair sometimes. And so what we wanted to hear, we're starting, we're leading with quite possibly one of the hardest questions, and that is, where do you find your faith in the good in people? Um, you mentioned art, and how do you still maintain faith in radical joy during these times? For as long as I can remember, I've just sort of been open to um, to being surprised and amazed. And I discover that all the time. You I know, mean, I discover it in, in wounded places. That's why I think one of the, I, I've devoted a whole chapter in my book, Radical Joy for Hard Times, to the kind of surprises that nature, even in damaged places, and maybe I could even say especially in damaged places, gives to us when we're open to it. Uh, the earth is constantly showing us beauty, even when it's hurt. And, you know, after there's some kind of a disaster in the world, whether it's a natural disaster like the terrible wildfires that we've been seeing in California and the, the West or hurricane or a tornado or whether it's a, a human disaster, human caused disaster like yet another gun massacre. Uh, you see people stepping forth in amazing and unselfish and heroic ways to help one another. And I, and I think that's the beauty, that's the human beauty when we have catastrophe, is that there's something about these events that, that brings forth a, a kind of unselfishness and a desire to help others and to put, even to put others first, which is not necessarily a very uh, human and especially I think maybe not a very American thing to do. So I look Thank for you. that. I mean, I look, I, I, I'm open to those kinds of manifestations of, of, of astonishment and wonder in the midst of the, the darkness of the despair. That's so yeah. beautiful. Thank, Thank you, you. Trebby. I'm interested to dig a little deeper into your work as well. So Amy mentioned the book she was reading, and it's called Radical Joy for Hard Times, Finding Meaning and Making Beauty in Earth's Broken Places. And I also know that you have started a nonprofit with the same name, Radical Joy for Hard Times. And, and so I'm interested to know, what does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? And how did it start? Uh, well, um, let's see. I think I'll go backwards in time of answering your questions. Um, the name okay. Radical Joy for Hard Times came to me in a funny flash. I originally was calling these programs uh, Attending the Earth. And then I was going to do one with a friend of mine in uh, in uh, uh, Eastern Oregon, Western Oregon, I mean. And I said to him, we need a better name than Attending the Earth. We need a name that's fierce and tough. And he said, well, okay, like what? And I just sort of went, well, like radical joy for hard times. It just sort of burst out of me. It was, it's, it's like, and I'm glad that, I'm glad it actually has that name. Some people really don't like the name. I really like it. Um, because it, it, it reminds us that we can apply this idea of finding and making beauty in hurt places, which is what the book is about and which the organization is about, um, not only in the hurt places in the earth, but in the hurt places in our communities and in ourselves and in our family and in our backyard and our garden. Um, so that's why, that's why the name continues to exist. And I founded the organization, um, 10 years ago. I started writing the book about seven years ago, and originally I had another name for it, but my publisher, North Atlantic Books, really liked the name Radical Joy for Hard Times, so they wanted to name the book that, too. So um, do you want me to talk now about how the, the whole concept first came to me? Yeah, we would love to hear it. And 
I would love to hear that. And I also would love to say that I love the idea of radical joy because joy has been made into this sort of soft, fluffy thing. And I don't think it is at all <laughs> when you truly embody it. And so, so right on, on the, on the title. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. How, yeah. How so you come to form and, and tell us the story of it. We'd love to hear it. Well, it's a, it was a very long search. Um, and it started in 1987, actually, because I was living in New York then, and I worked, I wrote scripts and did soundtracks for uh, audiovisual productions, uh, multimedia, you know, big slide, big screens with lots of slides and music and sometimes live presentations. And once a year, we would get some money from IBM to create a story for uh, their top salespeople. And they, it had nothing to do with machines or computers. They just wanted it to be a, an inspiring story. And so I would go to the New York Public Library and do a lot of research and come up with some ideas and we'd present them. And at that time, I was writing a lot, going out and visiting the Hopi and Navajo in Northeastern Arizona and writing about um, a spiritual and social issue that was going on between them and the government. And so I was really interested in the ways American Indians uh, combined uh, practicality and spirituality. And so I found this article about a, an Oneida man named David Paulus, and he had uh, received a National Science Foundation grant to recycle steel waste through a process that he had developed. And um, I thought he sounded like an interesting character. And so um, we got the okay from IBM and uh, from David. After David was a little reluctant at first, but then he, he remembered he'd had a dream in which a woman from IBM called him with a strange request. <laughs> and so he said, yes. Um, so we went up there and he told this story. He told me this story while he was being filmed about um, driving up to this, uh, this uh, Kaiser steel plant in California with his buckets. He wanted to get samples of steel waste to take back to his lab. And so he climbed up this huge mountain of, he described it as red and hard and compacted with iron oxide waste. He climbs up to the top of this and he got to the top and he was feeling pretty sure of himself. He was the, he was the first Native American ever to get this very prestigious National Science Foundation grant. He was under 40 years old. And so he stood up there and he said to the mound of steel waste, I will conquer you. And then he filled his buckets and he went back down to his car and he just thought about his upbringing as an Oneida and how all of creation is part of your family and part of every gathering you hold. And you, you deliberately bring in all of creation from the stones and the rivers, the fish, the animals, the ancestors. So he said, he said a prayer to creator, Let, tell me how I, tell me the right way to be in relationship to this waste. And he said, I realized that the waste was not an enemy to be conquered. It was an orphan that had gotten separated from the circle of life. And my job was to bring it back to the circle of life. And then, so we, the interview went on, you know, we did the production, he gave a speech. Um, the actress Colleen Dewhurst narrated it, it won an award. But those words, the, the, the waste is an orphan from the circle of life, it just touched me so much. Uh, I guess because I had always had a personal relationship with nature and saw I saw everything as alive and, and I felt sad when something was hurt or damaged or ignored. 
And this seemed to me about recycling your whole idea about what's beautiful in nature and what's useful in nature and what belongs and doesn't belong. It was just a whole new concept of, uh, of thinking about, about wholeness and beauty. And uh, so it took me 20 years of trying all kinds of things and asking lots of questions and feeling what, that I wasn't doing what I was called to do because it's always really felt like a calling. Radical Joy for Hard Times never felt like a good idea to me. It's felt like a calling. And, um, and finally, things just started coming together after a long search. Thank you for that. And if I could, I, I, so I, I read that part in the book where, where you tell this story and that quote of waste is an orphan from the circle of life. I mean, how could it not stop us in our tracks when we see that or hear <laughs> that? And, yeah. and what I'm really curious to know is uh, this idea that he, he didn't even really want to talk to you, but he had a dream, but then he remembered his dream. And I know I was thinking of me personally in that situation, because we project our own stuff onto others. And it, I've always, I've had to struggle with this idea of being an intellectual, becoming a part of my identity. And then you hear something like that. And, and I was curious, how did that affect you then? Were you open to that kind of things? Did you think he was a little far out? And did it shift? Oh, no, not at all. No, no, I didn't think he was far out at all. I mean, I, I'd always thought of myself as far out, you know, and weird. And, um, and, and I, I had gradually been finding people who were, um, who, who who thought in ways that were sort of outside of the box like I always did. And, and you know, I was really interested in alternative paths of knowledge. I've always been more of an intuitive person than a person who gets to where she's going by, by thinking and reasoning. So it, it, it was just, it, it was like magical words to me. It was like, it was like an invitation from deep inside of me and also like an invitation from the earth that said, this is your calling, this is your path, you know, come on, this is why you're here. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And we're so grateful that you listened to that nudge. We're so grateful. Thank you, me too. We use the word acceptance in our first step, and so it's a word we think about a lot and still haven't, I don't think, made peace with. And so I was really happy to see when you said, acceptance does not mean surrender. It does not mean resignation. Acceptance means I'm finally available to the entire spectrum of creative responses. Wow. We, as, as Amy mentioned, our first step is accept the problem and its severity. And it, it always comes up, always one of our people, one of our participants will always say, I can't accept this. I cannot accept where we're at. I can't accept what humanity is doing to this planet. And I always think of this quote. It's a very powerful quote. And, and I just, I am so grateful for the wisdom that it, it packs the punch, right? It, it, I mean, you can explain it better than us. So, so maybe I'll give you a second to unpack that quote for us. Well, I'll tell you two things. Um, one is um, I wrote that chapter because my husband's best friend is always accusing me of doing that. You know, like he he takes he takes the view that radical joy for hard times is kind of passively accepting fate, and um, so I wanted to address that. And I think it's in that chapter of the book that I tell this story that I just love that I think explains the idea of acceptance so well. And it's about a fisherman 
who was out in his boat in Japan the day that that horrible tsunami came in 2011. And uh, and he and his he had a boat that was called Sunflower that he'd had for many like decades. And he sees this wave coming toward him, and he knew that it was bad, and he knew that it would meant destruction. And so he said to his boat, um, well, we've been together all these years. We're either going to sink together or we're going to survive. And so he turned this boat right into the, right smack into the oncoming wave and uh, got tossed around a lot. Um, he was so uh, shaken and knowing that what had happened to his people was dire that he couldn't even go back. He just stayed out in the middle of the sea when it was all over, over a night. And I just think that's such a great example. Like when, when, when stuff is happening and it's undeniable and it's serious and it means trouble, you have to say, this is coming. And so what can you do? Like if he had said, well, I can't accept this, what's he going to do? Is he going to just, is he going to just sit there in the, and wait for it to go over him? And I think there's a, there's a difference between accepting, which is what you have to do and which is what he did. This, he, he accepted this is bad. This is destructive. This is going to kill a lot of people. But then he said, okay, now in the face of this, what can I do? And that's the important part. And I think that's what people are missing when they say to us, when they say to you and Good Grief Network and to me, well, it's just passive. They're, they're saying, they're, they're overlooking the fact that after you accept the reality of a thing, then you're invited to do whatever you can. And you're in with all the, the passion and the creativity and the, and the force that you can muster. So powerful. So now we're talking about, okay, if, if you and me and Amy are all accepting where we're at planetarily on the planet, uh, then what does this mean? How do we spend our days? Uh, what sort of actions do we do that are meaningful? And I, uh, I can't help but think about one of your other books, which is called Gorilla Beauty. And in Radical Joy for Hard Times, which is the book we're primarily talking about right now, you speak a lot about um, going into nature and repairing a, a relationship with a wounded place. Can you talk a little bit about uh, both this notion of, of repairing our psyche by, by being in wounded places and also gorilla beauty and what that means? Yeah, and I'll, I'll start by saying that if we come to the point, which I think in the last year or so, more people have come to the point of accepting uh, the reality of climate change than ever before, because it's pretty undeniable, um, that once we come to the point of accepting that we are in for a very rough ride, and so are the generations that are, that are going to be following us for a few generations, um, then we have to say, what can we do? And Joanna Macy talks about, well, there are people who do things like trying to stave off what's bad, trying to ameliorate it. There are people who try to develop uh, ways of keeping, uh, keeping us uh, as safe and as healthy and sustainable as possible during the bad times. And then there's changing consciousness. And I believe, the, the Radical Joy for Hard Times believes, that we are going to be very challenged as individuals and as communities and as families as these changes take place on the earth. And what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to find ways of finding creativity and beauty and compassion, which leads often to joy, uh, through small, simple acts. 
And that it, those are ways that we're going to keep ourselves and our community alive and keeping our life meaningful. And so this whole idea of guerrilla beauty, it started out just sort of like a, a fun little idea that I got because it, it, we, it, they used to use it in the 80s with, uh, well, before that, but um, with, uh, with fighters in Latin America who were not part of the regular army and were defending their land and their and their traditions and they would dash into these places and they would they would fight and then they would disappear it was hard to catch them and so i got this idea of guerrilla beauty which is uh, which is going into a place that's hurt or endangered and making a simple little act of beauty there and disappearing so this is not about fame it's not about riches it's not about making a name for yourself you don't have to haul in a lot of supplies. You don't have to mobilize. You can do it alone. You can do it with a friend. You can do it with a whole group of people. It's about going to a place and getting to know it and making making beauty for it and finding beauty for it. So there's this uh, there's this sort of feeling about it being anonymous and a little bit mischievous and certainly playful and creative, and yet. Under, that what underlies it is a, a real deep grasp of the underlying seriousness of what you're doing because you wouldn't do it, you wouldn't need to do it if it weren't serious. And I think as, uh, as we become more and more challenged, um, taking care of where we live and the people who live there, despite obvious differences, you know, like differences of religion or of race or of, of political party is going to be absolutely essential if we're going to survive and not just survive, but to find meeting and, and, and beauty and love as we do it. Thank you. What I'm hearing is, is relationships how important relationships, whether it's with other people or these natural landscapes, that's that's what I'm hearing from this response about making gorilla beauty or, or going into wilderness. And even if, like you said, it's not about ego, it's not about fame, you know, it's not about posting it on Instagram. It's about the act of doing it and, and building this relationship. Yeah, exactly. And it's the act of doing it even though you think, well, what's what's the good of this? And I think that's another thing that people get stuck with. They say, well, what's the good of this? What good is it going to do? It's not going to turn anything back. It's not going to bring the forest back or it's not going to clean the river. But it does make a difference because it's a way of going to a place where you might have some resistance to going towards, you know, a, a river or a clear cut or a place that's being fracked or a mountaintop mine. And it's about facing it. It's about saying, maybe there's something surprising and interesting and beautiful here. It's about sharing your stories with other people who care about that place. And then it's this act of giving back because the earth gives so much to us. And then we make this simple gift of beauty. And one of the things that we recommend with Radical Joy for Hard Times is, you make this gift of beauty out of materials that the place itself provides. You know, so sticks or stones or, or trash or or sand or you know whatever happens to be there and the underlying message we get from that is that um that the, the beauty uh, the restoring beauty to a place is inherent right there in the place the the underlying beauty is already there which is what we want to know about ourselves that we don't need to be like somebody else 
or draw in all kinds of other people's skills and, and notions of, of wholeness or health. All we have to do is find the beauty in ourselves and start being true to it. So it's like making that parallel between the, the earth and, and the human and, um, and, and giving, giving, giving that gift back to the earth. And what I'm hearing is, is real gestures of love. Um, and exactly, yes. And true, true love is to see something or someone as it is and not as we want it to be. And it makes me think of you included a quote from uh, the former Sierra Club president, the one word you don't see much in environmental literature is love. And yeah, I think there's a real truth to that. And what uh, it also reminds me of is you mentioned a president of an environmental organization uh, referred to it as wallowing when you were asking for what kind of grief practices they have in place for these folks who are doing this work out of love and um, that there's a real resistance in this thought that love is soft. Uh, like we can't use the word love because it discredits the science of what we're saying or kind of this mindset that I think has been toxic and what I'm wondering is, is why do you think that this is still in play, especially amongst activists? Why are we still latching on to this story when it's clear to me, and your book does a great job of illuminating the importance of bringing love back into the dialogue? Yeah, it's a good question, and I, I don't have the answer to it. And, and as a matter of fact, there was a woman who's been very active in Radical Joy for Hard Times, for several years, and she's also an environmental activist um, trying to fight massive uh, chemical uh, industrialization in western Pennsylvania. And she's tried so hard year after year to get people to participate in our annual Global Earth Exchange event. And the activists just, they just don't want to do it. They think it's irrelevant. And um, I, it's, it's like they don't want to take time out from action. And, uh, and and what I always say is that those actions are incredibly important. Radical Joy for Hard Times and Finding and Making Beauty is not by any means meant to uh, to, to overcome those or change them or, or replace them. We need them both. But even within or before doing other kinds of activism, there could or should be time to sit down and have people share about what does this place mean to me? How do I feel about what's happening to it? How those people at that environmental organization where the guy said they were wallowing, it was like these people work months and months and months to try and save a canyon or a bird or a mountain or something. And then the legislation doesn't go through and there's no time or space or, or even um, concept of them being able to process this and share how they feel with one another. Um, why not? You know, it would take a few minutes, and and I think it would ground people more firmly in in what they're doing. Yeah, I I can't agree more. And again, we're we're praising your book a million times over because you do such a great job of of laying out uh, exactly what we're talking about. And and in the conversation, we're trying to bring these words to life, um, but they're they're wonderful on the page too. You have so many quotes that just resonate with what we're trying to do with good grief. And one of them follows suit with what you're just trying to say. 
Uh, and it says, what if, besides, or even in advance of trying to change the world, my actions change the way I relate to the world? What if my actions were, in and of themselves, imbued with compassion and even playfulness? What if they aroused in me reverence, a sense of adventure and discovery, the effervescent inspiration of play, and even joy? And then you say, this is the activism that must accompany, proceed, and follow all other kinds of activism if we human beings are to live on a planet that we continue to love and take care of even as it undergoes considerable challenges. Brilliant, yeah. Trevi. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for writing it. Even as we're facing the hard times, we have to be able to be creative and um, and and love people and love places and love actions and and find joy and be spontaneous. I mean, that's just, I think th that's more important than food. Well, it sustains us. You know, you, what mm -hmm. the work that you're doing is you're teaching people how to sustain ourselves. You know, we can't keep going headfirst into all these fights or all, all this environmental damage or democratic damage. You know, that won't sustain us. The, the fighting, the showing up every day at rallies, that's not a sustainable action. But what you're highlighting is what sustains us and what creates resilience. Mm -hmm. you give yeah, us and you know, I just thought of, uh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just saying you give us a reason to keep going. Well, thank you. Well, you know, when you were saying that just now, I thought of a woman that I met at the Bioneers Conference a few years ago who told me uh, she had worked in uh, several refugee camps. And um, I can't remember where this one was, whether it was Iraq or, or, or what, but, um, but she said there was a group of people there, and I've tried so hard since to find out who she was so I get in touch with her. But she said there was a group of people there, and they would paint the insides of their refugee tents with scenes from their homeland, you know, the animals and the mountains. And it was, I just thought that was so touching because those are such extraordinary circumstances. People that have been forced out of their homes because of violence, they, they can't go back. They're living under extremely poor conditions. They don't know what their future is about. And yet they're making time to recreate on the walls of their little UN tent or whatever it is, scenes of beauty from their homeland. So it's, you know, it just shows you what human beings are capable of under the most extreme conditions. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I heard you mention uh, about the Global Earth Exchange, and I think our, our listeners would be pretty interested in that. Could you give us a bit more information about that? Yeah, sure. When we founded Radical Joy for Hard Times, um, we wanted to find some sort of way of launching it and, and letting people know about it. And so this idea came up of having inviting people all over the world on a certain day. We picked a day in June, a Saturday in June, uh, to go to a wounded place that they cared about and to share their stories, get to know the place as it is now, and to make a uh, make a gift of beauty for the place. And uh, people, I think we had, I don't know if it was all seven continents that year, but people all over the world did it. And there weren't hundreds and hundreds of people. I don't know, there were maybe 75 different locations around the world. And, uh, and people liked it so much, we decided it had to be an annual event. And so it's been an annual event. This is our 10th year of doing the Global Earth Exchange. And this year it's June 22nd. And that it's, the invitation is the same every year. Go to a place you love. 
A lot of people go alone. Some people just go with their partner or their family or their kids. Um, uh, some people have done really big events like with, with church or uh, other spiritual groups. Um, uh, some people have done it as part of a their activist group. Um, and then they take a picture of, they, we invite them to make an act of beauty. And often the act of beauty is the bird, which is the symbol of radical joy for hard times. And the, the wonderful thing about birds is uh, birds are everywhere and birds are easy to make. You know, little kids know how to make birds from the time they start in kindergarten. And uh, we invite people to make this bird out of found materials and then send us a little story about what happened. You know, some people write their story is two pages long and some people's story is one sentence long. And then we put it up on the website. And uh, it's always so moving to look at the kinds of events that that people do. And this this would be a good time for me to mention that when I was first sort of pursuing this line of, of, of activism or artivism or whatever one would want to call it, I was thought, you know, is this only going to be interesting and important to me as an educated uh, white woman, an American, um, you know, interested in alternative paths of this and that, uh, or is this going to be something that other people are going to be interested in? And what's been so gratifying is knowing that, yes, other people are interested in this. And because everybody has a place or places that they love that they feel sad about because those places are under assault. And so we've had just an amazing uh, collective of events happening over the years in um, in Turkey and South Africa and Afghanistan, even in Ukraine. There was a woman in Ukraine who would participate every year on her own, making a bird for her whole country. Um, there have been scientists in Antarctica participating. Um, there are Balinese Hindus that have participated. There's a group of Franciscan monks in upstate New York that have participated. Um, there was a rabbi who participated last year. You know, and then people go to all kinds of events and they, I mean, they go to all kinds of places and they do these just amazing and beautiful things from having puppet shows to making grilled cheese sandwiches for people helping to clean up rivers. I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. So our stories are up on the website and, um, and they're, and they're beautiful. And I, if it's easy to register on the website, it's free. Um, and this year we have we're offering a special gift. We had a little flag made. It's uh, it's a seven by ten inch little banner with the Radical Joy for Hard Times bird on it and our logo. And we're giving those to um, everybody who signs up for the Global Earth Exchange this year. Wonderful. So it's just a wonderful it's a wonderful moving event. And what people always tell us is that um, they love knowing that other people are doing this on the same day of the year. It's really, it gives you a, a sense of all kinds of people all over the world taking a little extra step to do something for a place they love. Ah, that sounds amazing. And what I'm thinking is how starved we are for ceremony and ritual. And the fact that, that you and your organization have made something, again, where we can all celebrate together as, as one. Um, on the same day around the world, uh, creating acts of beauty. It, that's a ceremony and, and we don't have many of those in this culture. Uh, and, and I think creating space for something like that is an absolute must. 
Um, I think going back to ceremony and ritual, um, the importance of that cannot be understated. And a quick side note, uh, there's a beautiful poem called There Are Birds There by Jamal May about Detroit. Are you familiar with it? No, tell me the name again. There are um, birds there. I, I, we'll, we'll email it to you because I think based on what you're describing, you'll really like it. It's, it's, I grew up close to Detroit and, and know Jamal May personally, and it's just a, 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 a by the, so the title is There Are Birds There, and it's kind of about, you know, Detroit, we've kind of romanticized the suffering there a bit and forgotten about the joy that's there. And mm. I think just based on your, yeah, yeah, just kind of a fun side note, I think you'll really appreciate it. So we'll make sure to send it your way. I like it already. <laughs> <laughs> well, and another fun side note is about five or so years ago, so this is before we met Trevi, um, Kindy Nebaker was doing some of these rituals and she uh, put Radical Joy on my radar. And Kindy Nebaker is out of Salt Lake City and she does many different types of rituals and vision fasts. and. My side note is that uh, Kindy was going to be gone for one of these days. And I said, well, I, I want to do one of these things. You're going to be gone. What should I do? And she said, well, how about you host one? And I was fully unprepared for something like this. I, it was before I was even looking into these things, before I was trying to facilitate the conversations that we have. And so I was like, you know what, Kindy, I will try it. And um, a few friends, I think we only had three or four people there and me, and we met out at the Great Salt Lake, uh, just west of Salt Lake City, and we did a global earth exchange there. And and it's so brilliant oh. that, it, yeah, it becomes full circle. And, and now we have an opportunity to meet and chat and talk about your work. And, you know, be, before I even knew you, I was doing these sorts of things inspired by you and inspired by the actions that you've put into this world. And so thank you again. <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs> And thanks to Kindy, who is a wonderful human being. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks to Kindy. My next question is, you do a wonderful job of, of creating a distinction between staring and gazing. And you say staring is an act of curiosity and gazing is an act of love. And so I'm interested mm. to hear, because for me, this was really profound. I'm a very intellectual person. I'm very science-minded. And I'm like, oh, she's giving us definitions for these words and why gazing can be an act of love. And so I'm interested to hear more about what sustaining the gaze means and why this is important in these landscapes that, that are less than perfect. I'm putting that in quotes. <laughs> Uh, well, the, the phrase sustaining the gaze, I'm pretty sure it comes from Joanna Macy. That's where I know it from at any rate. Um, and I, I thought a lot about this a lot because um, before I founded Radical Joy for Hard Times, when it was still called Attending the Earth, I took a small group of people to a clear-cut forest on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and we spent a week there. And we would go out in the daytime and sit on these ancient stumps, like stumps of eight, 900 year old trees that have been clear cut. And then at night we camped in a beautiful protected old growth forest and we would tell our stories about the day. And so I would sit, I sat on the same stump every day and I, I thought about a lot about how one looks at, at broken places. And, and I know that like even here in my own uh, home in Northeastern Pennsylvania, like I'll go out and I'd say, look at my garden 
and there'll be a mixed sort of thing that's happening. I look at my flowers and I'm admiring them, but at the same time, there's this thing, well, that needs to be weeded and that's not coming up very well. And there's this sort of fixing, interfering mindset going on. And with that, with, in the clear cut, and what I'm recommending is when we go to damaged places is to simply gaze, to not try and fix, to not wish that things were different, or at least not to get agitated about wishing things were different. You might wish that things were different, but to sort of soften that, broaden it out, and just see what the place presents. And what I what I find is when I do that, and I can be doesn't have to be in a clear cut forest. I I can do it in my garden. If I just sort of sit and let my mind calm down and let my uh, let my nervous energy about wanting to do and fix and make and change uh, just kind of soften, then I the it's like the place starts coming alive and revealing itself, and you start noticing the shadows and the colors and the the textures and how things move in the wind and how things change when the sun is on them and and it's um it, it's it's that openness to the world that I, I talk about also when I talk about gazing in that chapter, that, that babies gaze, you know, they just are wide open and things will just sort of come into their consciousness, but they don't grab. Um, I had a line in there about how I think I said the, the, the gaze sips and the, and the stare grabs or gulps, you know, it's like it's eager and it's hungry and it wants, um, but the gaze is open and it's actually, when, when you allow yourself to gaze, it changes the whole effect on the body. The body becomes uh, kind of fascinated and slows down and starts breathing in the, the, the sort of the life and the activity of the place. And you become a little less human and the place becomes a little bit other. So it's like you meet in a sort of threshold place in between. And what power to sit there and not try to fix. There's so much power and strength in that. It reminds me yeah. of a quote from Terry Tempest Williams, where she says, to bear witness is not a passive act. And we both had the privilege of studying with Terry, and she says that a lot in person. To bear witness is not a passive act. And that, that has profoundly shifted how I bear witness in the world. I'm writing that down. <laughs> That's beautiful. So, yeah, it's um, not a passive act. It's not, and um, we're going to kind of wrap it up here with a final question in a second, but also kind of a side note. I also, alongside of your book, was reading Mirabai Starr's latest called Wild Mercy. Are you familiar with her? or her? I'm familiar with it, but I don't have it yet. So it, we got to, just by coincidence, caught her in the Bay Area. Uh, my path has crossed with hers a couple of times at interesting times in her life. And this latest book of hers is all about the divine feminine and uh, reclaiming the power of the feminine. And I think bearing something like bearing witness or gazing has been thought of in a feminine way, not in its true form and honoring its power, but in a way that's been dismissed and as passive. And so I, I while we're having this conversation, I am thinking a lot about what that means in the sense of the divine feminine. And so I just wanted to share that also on a personal level, if it's relevant at all to your work. I'm not sure, but I, uh, it, it's fresh in my heart as I'm speaking to you. So I think there's some really neat overlap going on here with multiple people calling, demanding that we 
we go back to this place of bearing witness as not being a passive act. Yeah, you know, all of these strands of of, of consciousness changing, they're changing, they're really related. You know, the strand of admitting that we feel grief about about our world and our planet and the strand of admitting that we love places and the strand of it um, of gazing and the strand of making art and the strand of doing ceremony. I mean, these are there are some pretty amazing things happening in the world now in, in response to all the awful stuff that's going on. And I think that's one of the things that that gives me um, I don't know if it gives me hope, but it, 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 it cheers me up a lot. Yeah, us me too. too. Me too. And so our final question is just what kind of additional insight or advice you have for activists moving forward? And I would love to know, uh, maybe more pointed that question, what, what's something you wish you would have heard or known as a young activist? Oh, well, first of all, I mean, I had the privilege of t going to three colleges when I was on my book tour last fall, and I just was amazed at the at the young people that I met in these classes and how, I mean, I think young people are more aware than a lot of the older people that I've met just about the reality of climate change and the state of the environment. Um, they want to, they want to do something. Um, they want to do things with other people. There's sort of less heroic doing it alone stuff than there was when I was growing up. And I just want to say, I mean, I guess the most important thing that I that I would say to any person, including young people, is that is that you you have to pay attention to what's important to you, and to do it even though there's not necessarily going to be anybody that's clamoring for you to do it or that's going to make your name, but to to do something because it needs to be done and. That's what I think is is so crucial about making beauty for these hurt places, uh, because it shows us that we can have an effect uh, on the earth and on our in the lives of those who are close to us by doing these simple creative acts. And the thing that the joy isn't something that we strive for. I found, and the joy I that's another thing that I hope I can have time to say that joy doesn't ever replace grief entirely. I don't think it springs up from the middle of it. Uh, we can't get rid of grief in this world we're living on, but we can ameliorate it by doing these creative acts. And that's where the joy comes from. It's from making these acts of guerrilla beauty and doing it with your friends and finding out you have things in common with people that you didn't think you had things in common with and giving back to the land that's given so much to us. And through those actions comes joy. So, so just do it even if nobody's watching. I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And wonderful insight. We're just so grateful for your time and what you're doing and the way you hold space and the way that you made something that's scalable so you can do it from anywhere. We're, we're so grateful for that. And we think it's, uh, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I think it's necessary in these times to be doing these kinds of things that build relationships, not just between your friends and your community, but with the natural world. Absolutely. Well, I thank you too. And I have total mutual admiration because the work that you're doing with Good Grief Network and helping people to 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 live with grief in a way that's not just about grieving all the time. I mean, it's thank you so much. Thank you, Trebby. This has been a pleasure.
Thanks for listening to Why a Good Grief Network podcast with your hosts, Amy Lewis Rowe and Laura Schmidt. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and come back next time while we dig into difficult questions during these predicament-laden times. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us under Good Grief Network. We hope you have a great day filled with meaning and joy. Thank you for listening.